Welcome back, everybody. It's CFP Winning Edge, the podcast edition. I'm your host, Scott Bogman. Follow me on the Twitter at Bogman Sports. I'm joined, as always, by the owner and proprietor of CFP Winning Edge, Nicholas Ian Allen. Follow him on the Twitter at CFP Winning Edge. Xavier is not with us today. It's his birthday today on uh, Thursday, or maybe it was Tuesday. His, his birthday is in the vicinity. It was this week. So uh, his family's taking him out for a birthday dinner tonight, so he wasn't able to make the recording. Uh, I know he's going to be crushed to miss to miss some teams like uh, Western Michigan and Old Dominion and USF, some of his favorites, of course. But somehow, Nick, we will uh, persevere without him. But uh, we got a pretty big update uh, right off the bat here. So uh, let's start there, Nick. What do we got? Well, uh, I've, I've been sort of dragging my feet a little bit, uh, but finally put uh, an official publication date on our 2023 team profiles that we've mentioned some in the past. I've had some uh, discussions and, and some, uh, you know, even a kind of expected schedule on, on Patreon uh, that uh, in May was our target for publishing this. Uh, but uh, due to shuffling the calendar a little bit, some other things that we've got going on that have just taken a little bit more time, including some what I think or at least hope are, are going to be uh, some pretty useful updates, uh, new pieces of information that are going in the sheets this year. A um, little later than I'd hoped, but June 19th is our official publication date. So all of our tier two Patreon supporters will have access to our 2023 team profiles on June 19th. I'm sure they will be still a little bit rough around the edges, but all the team information should be in there. All of our, um, you know, player ratings, our, our team rankings, schedule, uh, the, the game projections, all that good stuff um, will be available and uh, happy certainly to, to get that out. We always want to make it available as early as we possibly can, but I also want to make sure that it's um, at a respectable level of, yeah. of completeness because I don't necessarily want to uh, open it up too early when it's too rough around the edges and, and turn people off who maybe, you know, see it for the first time. Some of our long-term people, uh, you know, have mm -hmm. been messaging me for months, like, Hey, when can just I get put it, it out? <laughs> right. Just give it to me, you know, what, yeah. whatever conditions <laughs> it's in. I mean, let me, let me, let me add it. So, uh, which I understand, I respect. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of, uh, you know, we've, we've seen our first magazines out on newsstands. Um, I know a lot of the wind totals, of course, that we've been talking about on this show, uh, are out. And so some of the folks are, uh, annually interested in what our projections have to say when, when those numbers come out. So um, I certainly understand. And, and for those folks, uh, longtime patrons, certainly prospective uh, patrons who are kind of holding off waiting, you know, before they join us um, want to get all of our stuff completed and, and published as quickly as we certainly can. Um, but June 19th seemed to be the best date to kind of hit that sweet spot between uh, when we were, uh, you know, more or less done, even though we make changes all day, every day, uh, from here till next season, basically. Um, but also, you know, that, that, uh, uh there's, yeah, that, that's the date. <laughs> so it'll <laughs> be done. Way. You'll, I mean, you'll have access at that point if you're on our Nick account. is thorough, guys. If you haven't, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, Nick is thorough. Uh, he makes sure that his information is correct 
and you got to respect it. So, you know, uh, June 19th, we will have way before the season starts, we'll have uh, all, all of the team profiles done and ready to rock. Uh, we have not much transfer news before we get into teams 120 to 111 here, Nick. But uh, Keon Coleman, the wide receiver from Michigan State, did end up choosing Florida State. I believe we mentioned that he was in the portal uh, last week or the week before and uh, found a new home in Florida State. So what does he bring to the Seminoles? Well, Florida State's a, a team that enters this year with really high expectations. Right now they're in our top 10 uh, power rankings, and and I've seen them you know, in some preseason uh projections and polls and and uh other rankings uh up closer to the top five i I definitely think that's in the realm of possibility Uh, but at receiver they were you know somewhat thin uh johnny wilson big time uh big target we have seen him take over games uh and i'm certainly a a fan of his uh, style of play but um the the depth uh, as far as just, you know, established production behind him, you know, there's certainly some room for improvement. And Keon Coleman comes in after having a, a really big year. I mean, outproduced uh, Jalen Reed at Michigan State last year. Very, very close numbers, but, um, you know, peaked ahead in, in just about every uh, major category. And so, you know, Keon Coleman has a track record of production, is talented player and, and, um, certainly would be a great compliment to Johnny Wilson, maybe even a co number one, depending on how things shake out. So, uh, for a team like Florida state who already has high expectations, add a, you know, top tier, uh, available player in the transfer portal, at least in this window, um, could be a big addition and, uh, could, you know, not saying he's the, the missing piece, but, um, I think that he's talented enough and has proven that he can come in and, and I think make an impact for what should be a really, really good team. This is why verse stayed, right? Uh, we're all kind of, why, why is Jared verse staying uh, at Florida state? It's because this team is good and they have a shot at it. So uh, adding another piece, definitely helpful uh, for the Seminoles. So let's get into the uh, team previews here, starting at number one twenty, Western Michigan, Nick, uh, despite a competitive final month of the year, Western Michigan alum Tim Lester lost his job after the Broncos' uh, five and seven record um, marked their first losing season since 2013 in Kalamazoo. DK win total for them this season is three and a half. We have them favored to win three. Uh, we have their uh, final projection at five and seven, so we are officially over the three and a half DK win total. The question for uh, Western Michigan is. New head coach Lance Taylor inherits a defense ranked 131st in returning production and an offense that lost two of its best playmakers as transfers to Minnesota. But Taylor retained D.C. Lou Esposito and brought in a few experienced uh, transfers with a manageable max schedule. Can the Broncos get back to winning here, Nick? What do you think uh, about them uh, in year one here under Lance Taylor? Well, I think... I think the transfers are a really, really big piece of it. And uh, two potentially major impact players, we penciled them in as starters immediately. Uh, quarterback Hayden Wolf transferring in from Old Dominion. He's been a multi-year starter there. And running back Keyshawn King, uh, who has, you know, been a, a partial starter um, at Virginia Tech. And 
you know, prior to both of those guys transferring in, uh, which was uh, maybe after spring practices had had wrapped up fairly late in the process for guys that you would pencil in as starters. Um, I was expecting Western Michigan might be one of the very lowest rated teams in our power rankings. Uh, I thought there was a good chance that they might be in the, you know, high 120s, 130 range. Um, just, you know, coming off a, a really, really difficult year last year, um, you know, 122nd in uh, team performance. Um, offensively, one of the very worst offenses in the, in the country last season. Um, and then, as you mentioned, lost two of their very best players. Sean Taylor, Corey Crooms um, ha- had been dependable players and, and you know, all Matt caliber uh, players at running back and receiver, respectively. But um, with those guys gone uh, and, and uh, with as much turnover as there is on the defensive side of the ball, uh, Western Michigan lost some big time uh players not just to you know uh, graduation guys like Zaire Barnes and Dorian Jackson who are both all Mac caliber players but they also lost all conference defensive linemen Andre Carter and Brandon Fiske to the transfer portal um there's also a, a little bit of a um uh, unknown Marshawn Nealand who is a similarly uh productive defensive lineman uh Entered the transfer portal in December, committed to Colorado, but was on the Western Michigan spring roster and was not, is not currently on the Colorado roster and trying to do, you know, as I sometimes have to this time of year, do some, you know, online sleuthing. His most recent tweets are all about Western Michigan and being in Kalamazoo. So I think he's back, but, uh, you know, if he were gone, I mean, uh, that that's almost a complete rebuild on the defensive side of the ball with him back. At least you have, you know, one piece up front that uh, perhaps you can, can build around, but Western Michigan ranks among the, you know, lowest in returning production on the defensive side of the football, uh, even with Nealon back and, you know, an offense that struggled so much last year, there just weren't a whole lot of signs uh, you know, for me to to be optimistic that this is a team that's going to get back to consistently one of the you know teams to beat in the MAC in the MAC West certainly. So um, if Wolf comes in, solidifies that quarterback position, which they did have a little bit of a you know carousel last year, some injuries, some ineffectiveness. Um, guys like Jack Salopek and Trayson Borget and, and uh, Marion Herbowski all had, uh, you know, chances to start. Um, but Wolf, a little more experience, a uh, little more seasoned, had had, you know, some interest after he entered the transfer portal, had been connected to, uh, you know, some Power Five programs, lands at Western Michigan, an opportunity where he's probably, you know, should be expected to, to come in and be the favorite um, can lean on a guy like King a little bit uh, at running back. Um, and we'll see. I mean, if there's a, a little bit of a, a strength in what's, you know, returning, they do have three returning starters on the offensive line, a couple of returning starters at receiver are bringing in a couple of FCS transfers at receiver as well. And Kenneth Womack and Leroy Thomas. Um, so, 
if they get a little bit, you know, out of Wolf and, and King, if if those guys can step up and be, you know, quality starters at at those pretty key positions with a new staff that's hoping it sounds like to, you know, play at a, a quicker pace offensively. Um, I think that this team does have, you know, the talent to be competitive week in and week out. Uh, but with, you know, excuse me, so many new faces on defense. Uh, I, I, my, my hopes aren't, you know, super, super high. So uh, I think they will be competitive, but this is a team that really could go either way. And it looked like, you know, for the early part of the offseason, maybe had a chance to be one of the worst teams in the country. But now, you know, maybe there's a little more uh, hope, a little more reason to be optimistic. Hey, rebellions were built on hope, right? We know that. So, uh, you know, a little too many ifs in there that I like to hear. Uh, but they're they they've got some tough, uh, you know, non-conference games as well. You know, Iowa tough game, uh, Mississippi State, I believe, in there as well on the road for both of those. Syracuse, uh, I mean, three Power Five. Syracuse, yeah, programs Syracuse. tough, yeah, yeah. That's that's kind of it's kind of rough. St. Francis should be a nice one, uh, but those other three. <laughs> are uh, are kind of tough so let's go to number 119 ulm they finished four and eight uh highlighted by the 21 17 victory over rival louisiana in the sunbelt opener the warhawks were three and two and one score games including uh close losses to coastal carolina and south alabama three and a half is their win total we had them favored to win two but we have them at four and eight again so officially over the three and a half projection for ULM, Nick, back-to-back, they, -back, they have four win seasons. That's not going to mean a lot elsewhere, but that could be an overachievement at ULM under Terry Bowden, despite being double-digit uh, underdogs in seven or more games in our projections call for another four victories in 2023. Is that going to be too high, too low, or is that going to be Goldilocks just right for <laughs> the Warhawks this season? Uh, it, it seems too high to me. At, at first glance. And I think part of that is, uh, you know, four wins at ULM is a bit of a, an overachievement. I mean, this is a, a team that is at a talent disadvantage more often than not. Um, you know, there's a lot of turnover at ULM, uh, you know, yearly, um, a lot of transfers in, a lot of transfers out. I was, I feel like really, really fortunate to find a uh, spring roster. It's not even, um, you know, in the normal online roster uh, spot on the official team website. Had to go. He had to pay the janitor. Digging around for bucks. it a little bit. Yeah, had the ULM janitor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but hey, you know, found it. It was, it was useful. It was helpful. Um, but uh, other than, you know, some, some transfers coming in that, could potentially have a, a an immediate impact. Guys like Thad Franklin Jr., a running back transfer from Miami, who kind of pencils in as, as a day one starter, you would expect. Uh, the receiver group, which does return Tyrone Howell, who had a you know big end of last year, um, uh, played his way onto the you know on all excuse me all Sun Belt uh, team. Uh, they added Bud Tolbert, added Nine Davis, uh, and uh, you know, you, you can kind of 
uh, see that this offense, if they get the quarterback situation right, which they did, uh, you know, lose a, a, a starter there. Um, uh, pardon me. Uh, Chandler Rogers, who had been a, a starter at ULM last year, been um, kind of a, you know, explosive playmaker at times. Is uh, transferred to North Texas and basically, uh, you know, what, what, was left over uh, hardly played at all. You know, hardly any quarterback on the roster has, has seen any action. Jaira Wright, who's been there for a few years and, and has played a little bit is uh, a potential weapon as a runner um, is the projected starter. Sounds like everything, you know, coming out of spring practice uh, indicated that he was the heavy, heavy favorite to uh, be the, the starter at quarterback. He actually, uh, you know, after reading that, had to, to make some adjustments because Wright had actually entered the transfer portal after Rodgers. So uh, they, they brought him back. He was there for spring. Um, seems like, you know, solidified his spot at the top of the depth chart. Uh, they also brought in a transfer from Louisiana in Hunter Herring, who uh, might be his top competition but um you know herring didn't didn't really play uh either his uh you know third year guy um hasn't uh made a, a, an appearance yet in a in a college game so um that's a, a little bit of a question and you know for ulm where there is uh you know they've had starters at the quarterback position transfer out before um not necessarily a, a super unfamiliar place. Their top two running backs transferred out, Malik Jackson and Andrew Henry. Um, and so that kind of, you know, clears the way probably for Franklin, who is a big back, 237 pounds. Um, he and Isaiah Woolard, who is a transfer from Ole Miss, you know, talent-wise, potentially you could argue a little bit of an upgrade uh, just in terms of, you know, raw talent, power five talent coming in. Uh, to replace those guys, Jackson and Henry, but it's still another, you know, transition. It is uh, difficult sometimes to replace experienced players in a in a system in a in a program. So, um, offensively, if everything comes together and and clicks, I think that that core group, uh, right, with his playmaking ability. Uh, I mean, some of his junior college uh highlights pretty pretty impressive i mean he made he's, he's capable of breaking off you know big runs um so kind of exciting to see if he does get an extended opportunity um but he working with franklin and woolard and howell and you know tolbert and davis uh bugs mortimer is uh, a guy who was a you know four-star recruit who i believe committed maybe even signed at louisville but it ended up you know, not working out, made his way to ULM last year as a true freshman and, and, uh, um, or excuse me, as a redshirt freshman and ended up, he's actually their leading returning, uh, rusher, though he is a receiver. Um, so anyway, I mean, there, there are some pieces there that I think could make this a, a pretty interesting team. The offensive line is somewhat experienced, uh, has three returning starters plus a couple of, you know, guys on paper who are pretty talented. Stacy Wilkins was a uh, highly rated recruit who signed with Oklahoma coming out of high school. Multiple junior college guys coming in. Uh, you would expect to have an opportunity to see some significant playing time. And then we'll just sort of have to see how it works out 
on defense because last year, you know, ULM ranked 115th in defensive team performance. Um, they don't rank particularly high in uh, returning production on either side of the football. I mean, they're 118th overall. They're 100th defensively in returning production, 118th on offense right now. So um, it's just, you know, on paper and the way they kind of, overachieved you could you could say last year won you know more close games than they lost um it's easy to to be pessimistic i think that they're not going to get to that you know three and a half or or four wins this year uh there's some tough opponents in the non-conference schedule army texas a&m uh they do yeah i will miss there at the end of the year um uh, so you know hopes necessarily probably aren't very high probably looking at one and three uh in the non-conference schedule maybe two and two since you're hosting army in week one and and they are unveiling a new offense that you know maybe isn't going to be quite as difficult to prepare for as uh their triple option attack was in the past but you know we'll see don't really know what to expect so um hard to to you know, count on that as a win either. Um, and then the Sunbelt, and especially the Sunbelt West is is tough. Uh, so I, you know, my, I, I think I would rather if our projection fell on the under. Um, but, you know, under Bowden, the last couple of years, ULM has, has found a way to win some games that they weren't expected to. And so, you know, don't necessarily like to, to, bank on that but um it's it's happened before and it it could happen again so i don't i our numbers uh as you said expect expect ulm to uh to get there to to find that fourth win i'm not highly confident but especially if you know that group of new faces in the offensive skill positions if if those guys come together this could be a fun team that you know, could be, could be tough to beat, could be tough to outscore. So um, I guess I'm, I'm hopeful, but I'm not necessarily uh, super optimistic that, that they'll be able to get that fourth win. Yeah. That, that schedule, that schedule is going to make it tough for sure. Yeah. That non-conference. Yeah. So uh, we'll see what they can do. Let's go over to number 118 rice though. Rice lost its final three games to finish the regular season five and seven. The owls were selected to play in their first bowl game since 2014. They lost 30, 24 uh, to Southern miss in their bowl game. Four and a half is the DK win total. We have them projected at five and seven uh, only favored in three though. But so we're officially over the four and a half Nick for rice. Uh, they left conference USA for the AAC and also play three 2022 bowl games, bowl teams in conference play. Can new QB JT Daniels and the owls navigate difficult schedule and get, uh, and get back to back-to-back bowl games in 2023, which would be pretty impressive for rice. It would, it would. Yeah. Um, pretty similar to ULM in a lot of ways in, in the way that the, uh, schedule sets up. I mean, they play Texas uh, on the road in week one. They play Houston uh, at home, but you know, a, a, now a power five Houston team um, in week two. And, and then UConn isn't necessarily 
you know, the same caliber of, of uh, bull team, um, but was a team that, you know, uh, got there last year. And we'll talk about them uh, more as well. And then leaving Conference USA, which has, you know, been right there, Conference USA and the MAC the last couple of years have been sort of neck and neck for uh, lowest rated conference and at the FBS level, moving up to the AAC, which uh, isn't quite as good as it was after losing, you know, Houston and, and UCF and Cincinnati, but um, you could argue still a, a step up in competition. So um, it's it's going to be tough for Rice, but uh, they like ULM have, have uh, relied on uh, some transfers to come in. And, and, you know, I think you could argue uh, probably some uh, more reason for optimism, JT Daniels being, you know, former five-star recruit, uh, former power five starter is a true freshman uh, has flashed at times. Rice is his fourth FBS program now after USC, Georgia, and last year at West Virginia. Um, it obviously has never quite clicked for him. Uh, but I know that the coaching staff at Rice, Mike Bloomgren is, uh, you know, as soon as they landed Daniels, he, he was uh, quoted, you know, multiple times saying that, that he's a guy that he had been after. Uh, for years and seemed like the perfect fit for his offense. So um, brought him in, you know, ahead of, of uh, some experienced quarterbacks, still had plenty of experienced quarterbacks on the roster. TJ McMahon transferred out, um, you know, AJ Pageant, who played well in the bowl game uh, as a true freshman, uh, you know, wasn't quite ready to, to hand over the keys of the offense to him, brought in Daniel specifically and, and, you know, with guys like Bradley Rosner, who is, I believe, now in his eighth year in college, uh, at least seventh, but uh, <laughs> was able to get a, a waiver um, to come back, you know, six five, productive target. Um, and Luke McCaffrey, who, you know, transitioning to receiver, but is uh, really adapted to it well. You know, those two guys, one, two receivers, um maybe one of the, the better duos in the AAC. Uh, so, you know, you throw in Matt Sykes, who's a power five transfer, um, Jack Bradley, the, the returning starter at tight end. Um, they've got a little depth there. Cedric Patterson, the third was injured early last year was, but was expected to be a starter at receiver. Um, their running back group is, is, you know, experienced Juma Ottavano and, and Ari Broussard are both, uh, experienced, you know, senior running backs who have starting experience. Um, offensively, it, it it looks like Rice really could be a fun unit. Um, the offense did perform a little bit better last year than the defense. They were 86th in offensive team performance on the offensive side of the ball. They were 68th in passing, um, according to our team performance numbers. I think that there's room you know, especially if, if Daniels really uh, lives up to what made him a highly sought after uh, power five recruit and transfer multiple times over, um, you know, you, you could see that this actually is one of the better, uh, or at least has the potential to be one of the better passing offenses um, in the AAC, maybe at the group of five level. Uh, so I'm, I'm optimistic there defensively 
you know, it, it's a fairly experienced unit in terms of returning starters. Um, you know, they're not any major, you know, obvious holes in the starting lineup. Um, every level has, you know, returning starters, Isaiah Floyd up front, um, three returners, you know, three out of four starters in the linebacker core are back. Josh Piercy, Chris Conti, Myron Morrison, uh, you know, Josh Piercy had a, a, a very, very productive year last year. Excited to see, uh, you know, how he'll be able to carry that over. Um, and then three returning starters in the secondary. So, you know, from an experience standpoint, they look like they're, they're potentially going to be okay from a, uh, you know, talent number standpoint. And as we mentioned at the top of the show, we don't have our, our final uh, position ratings, you know, done yet. But um, last year, at the end of last year, Rice ranked uh, 118th in, in our linebacker uh, position strength numbers, uh, 112th in the back seven, you know, triple digits are very close to it um, in those three position groups. So even though they'll take a little bit of a, a step forward based on experience, and in returning production, you know, they're currently 44th on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, this was a unit that didn't grade out particularly well in team performance. They were 118th overall defensively, uh, 113th passing defense, 122nd rushing defense, and then just, you know, raw talent numbers, uh, not that great. So it's possible that Rice is a team that's, you know, really going to have to lean heavily on what should be a pretty good offense. Um and if they're going to be successful, it might have to be kind of in a uh, you know shootout. shootout type situation, and and you know that's that's potentially going to be difficult when you're talking about taking a step up in uh, competition. So you know they uh, we we probably won't learn a ton in that week one trip to Texas. We may or may not learn very much about uh, Houston, uh, but. Texas Southern, USF, East Carolina in weeks three through five, you know, at that point, uh, we'll, we'll find out a good bit about how competitive Rice is going to be for the rest of the year because, you know, should be able to get some things right against Texas Southern, the FCS opponent, USF, a team that we'll be talking about uh, later today, even though that game is on the road, first year head coach, team coming off of, you know, 11 loss season. Uh, and then East Carolina is maybe the the you know last time i checked they were uh last in returning production um overall and and uh yeah overall they're 133rd in returning production 132nd on the offensive side of the ball so um those are certainly winnable games and then you know they're going to be uh pretty similar in a you know roster strength or, or talent profile um to a lot of the teams in the back half of the schedule as well. Tulsa, you know, Charlotte, FAU, uh, they do have to play some of the teams that are expected to compete for the AAC title three in a row, Tulane, SMU, and UTSA. Um, but, you know, by that time, especially if the offense um, is clicking with JT Daniels and that receiving core, you know, Rice could be a, a tough out for, for teams like Tulane and SMU who have to go to Houston to, to play. So um, I, I could see a range of outcomes for Rice. I could see 
them getting back to a bowl game and actually, you know, getting legitimately bowl eligible. I think that's um, certainly a, a possibility, but also, you know, Rice, similar to ULM is a team that isn't going to have a, uh, you know, talent advantage very often from top to bottom, you know, on the roster, especially on the defensive side. So um, to win, that offense is really going to have to carry, you know, carry the way and it's got the potential to, but um, it's, it's, it's going to be tough. So I, I, I think I like that we're over four and a half. There's not much room there. I mean, we're right at, you know, 4.8. But uh, I could certainly, you know, see that, that there's, there's a scenario as well where this team just might not be able to, uh, do enough to, to, you know, stay competitive week in and week out. So, um, I'm, I'm hopeful, but, uh, similar to ULM, you know, not necessarily the most optimistic. Yeah. I mean, uh, they're, they're smart, right? Uh, that, that, that's what we say. That's what we hear about rice and Stanford. They're, they're so smart. Uh, so hopefully they'll be able to work out. I mean, you like to hear that JT Daniels is a perfect QB for the system, but also, I mean, what are you supposed to say when you get a transfer? You know, eh, he was fifth on our list. You know, not going to say that. So he's perfect. We've been chasing him for years. So uh, yeah. it makes a lot I of mean, sense. I kind of believed it, but uh, I mean, they've yeah. had opportunities, right? <laughs> and Rice I mean, certainly wasn't JT Daniels' top, uh, yeah. top option. <laughs> you want to believe. It's just tough to, you know, most coaches' stuff is just lip service. Yeah. So, uh, but, but I mean, hopefully... Uh, he was telling the truth there. Let's go to 117 in Colorado State, though. Several key players followed uh, from Nevada. J- Jay Norvell, his first season was not a smooth transition. The Rams offense struggled throughout a 3-9 and nine debut, uh, failing to score 20 points in any game. DK has them at four and a half wins. Uh, we have them favored to win three. We have them at five and seven, so we're officially over the four and a half, Nick. But for Colorado State, Norvell's offense ranked number 128 in team performance in 2022. Uh, can the Rams uh, turn this around and, and score enough to capitalize on a solid defense uh, and take a noticeable step forward in the win column this season? I, I think they should. Um, last year, just the, the offensive performance was so unexpected. Um I mean, the success that Norvell had at Nevada, bringing in players who uh, were part of that system, um, you know, Clay Millen being the, the quarterback, um, even though he wasn't obviously the starter at Nevada, was a pretty highly rated recruit, one of the highest maybe in, uh, you know, school history, and seemed like, you know, just insert him and, and, uh, the offense should be able to just go out and, and maybe be one of the better units in the Mountain West. But not only did they come up you know, short of that, it was legitimately one of the very worst in the country. And I had to go back and double check that multiple times. Like uh, they didn't score 20 points in a game. Like I, It's hard I, to believe. Yeah. And, and I mean, I remember, you know, watching some Colorado State games uh, last year and and it was it was painful you know watching just the other than Tory Horton who had an incredible year uh I mean 71 catches 1131 yards eight touchdowns 
uh, for an otherwise horrible offense. Um, you know, they won. They were shut out. What was it? Twice. They scored one touchdown against Washington state against well, Michigan. Yeah. I mean, 10 points against Sacramento state. They got beat, you know, yeah, they got beat 41 to 10 by Sacramento state. Uh, they won three games where they scored 17 points. I mean, you know, the defense kept this team competitive. They lost by one to Wyoming. Uh, they they hung tough with Air Force at the end of the year, lost by four to Utah State midseason. I mean, this Colorado State team, as bad as its offense was outside of Horton, uh, you know, really wasn't very far from uh, making a run at a bowl game. And, and the defense was a big reason for that. Um, Muhammad Kamara, defensive lineman, is maybe the best defensive lineman in the Mountain West. Uh, just a really, really good, productive player. And then all five starters return in the secondary, led by Jack Howell, who is an All-Mountain West performer. Uh, Aiden Hector uh, had a, a you know productive year, made some big plays. Henry Blackburn is a solid uh, performer as well. So, you know, the secondary, one of the better units in, in uh, maybe the, you know, group of five conferences. Uh, at the end of last year, it was the, you know, highest rated secondary in the Mountain West, according to our talent numbers. And I would expect that, you know, once we get everything fully calculated for this year, uh, we're talking, you know, maybe a top 40 unit nationally in, in roster uh, strength and position strength. Um, I mean, that's a, it's a good, good group. And, you know, they do have some, uh, you know, some, some pieces to replace in the linebacker core and, and up front. But um, overall, the defense, I think, is, is you know, should be uh, top 75 again, certainly, in our team performance numbers. They were 74th overall defensively last year. They were top 35 against the pass. And, you know, with that experienced secondary returning fully intact, you would expect, you know, maybe they'll even be a, a top 25 caliber pass defense. So um, I think that, you know, there's there's certainly reason uh, to expect that it's going to be difficult to uh, you know score on on this Colorado State defense, and I I have to believe that last year you know last year's offense was just uh, I mean fluke isn't necessarily right, but I I have to expect that they're going to take a step forward. Uh, Horton is back. You know, Millen is back. You expect that, you know, hopefully a full year of experience under his belt, 10 starts he made last year. Uh, he will play better. Um, there is a little bit of uh, unknown situation surrounding Avery Morrow, who's gotten himself in some uh, potentially pretty significant legal troubles, currently uh, indefinitely suspended. Um, you know, that, that certainly would be a big loss because he really came on at the end of last year, provided – uh, a little bit of, of uh, you know, positive uh, rushing production. But, you know, without him, Millen and Horton, solid uh, combo. They added Dylan Goffney as a transfer from SMU. And then they had a, a pretty decent group of freshman receivers last year, including Justin Ross Simmons, excuse me, Justice Ross Simmons, uh, who was a full-time starter, played over 75% of the team snaps last year. 
Um, and then they added a, a pretty interesting tight end option, 6'4", 240-pound uh, Dallin Holker from BYU. Uh, so, you know, if the offensive line comes together, which is a little bit of a question, looks like they're probably going to have at least two uh, first-year transfer starters up front, only one full-time starter returns from last year's unit, Jacob Gardner. Um, and that was a pretty bad group last year, ranked 121st in our line performance numbers. If they uh, can can whip together a, a better unit up front, and depending on how things work out with you know Avery Morrow, and if he's not able to you know make it back, uh, there is some talent behind him. They brought in Kobe Johnson, a transfer from North Dakota State, uh, who could be in line for you know pretty heavy workload, uh, shared carries at NDSU. But um, he and a couple of pretty pretty talented true freshmen in Damian Henderson and Justin Marshall, uh, Marshall who may play running back, may play receiver. I've seen him listed as both. Um, there's, there's talent there. So, you know, if that offensive line comes together, if guys like Millen, especially, but you know, the young guys take another step forward, if Horton continues to just be maybe one of the best receivers in college football, I think this offense has to be better. It's just, will it be a top 100 unit? Will it be a top 75 unit? Will it be a, you know, a top 50 unit like we expected they would be last year? If so, if they can take a big step forward, you know, this Colorado State team could be a, you know, not only a bowl team, but maybe even make some noise in the Mountain West title race. Uh, but it's difficult to expect that because last year was so bad, uh, so bad, so disappointing. So um, they also have a tough non-conference schedule, Washington State and Colorado. Uh, they have an early idle week week two they will be off um which means have to play 11 straight games after that that could get that be... bye week for colorado though i mean do get the bye week for Colorado. you're right absolutely that's a winnable game uh but that that stretch you know at the end of last season that includes uh playing rival wyoming on the road playing hawaii on the road at the end of the year yeah. um that's going to be a long trip after you know for your 11th straight game um, so there's, there's some schedule quirks that, uh, make it not necessarily, uh, a, a super, super manageable schedule, but they do get air force at home. They get San Diego state at home, Nevada at home, uh, Boise state at home. So, you know, you get some of the, the, uh, who we expect would be the top contenders, uh, in the mountain West, like Boise state, like air force, uh, San Diego state certainly always is capable get those teams at home, knock off a couple of teams that, you know, maybe you were not favored to beat. Um, they could, they could definitely be in the mix. It's, it's Colorado State's kind of a difficult team to project because you do have to uh, kind of on faith a little bit, say this offense is going to be better than what it showed last year and perhaps significantly so. Um, but I'm, I'm more optimistic that Colorado State is going to get there than I was for Rice or ULM. And part of it is because their their defense is legitimately good. And so if that if they're able to maintain that level of play, you don't have to do much better on offense to be How excited are you if they put up like three touchdowns on Washington State week one? 
Are you super <laughs> excited about them? You know, uh, if if they if they score twenty points against Washington State, I mean, <laughs> obviously they, you know, have scored more in a game than they did in all of twenty twenty two last year, right? Uh, but yeah, I mean, I I think that that would be a really Pretty high good marker sign. Yeah, I th- I think that would be a really really good sign if they if they. Um, if they score 20 points against Washington state and if they are competitive against Colorado, which I expect they will be, I mean, Colorado, they uh, can win that game with they, the way, Colorado you know, is. potentially they, they could, and it's a rivalry game and Colorado, of course, Actually, as we've talked prepare. about so much turnover there. It's, it's a little tricky to, to project. See, so the thing is for me, that third game week four at middle Tennessee, that that's kind of a tough one because you're playing two power five opponents in three weeks, two games in three weeks to start. Then, you know, Colorado, maybe they do get a little bit of, you know, even if they don't win that game, maybe they do get a little confidence and and momentum, whatever. And then you have to travel a pretty long way to uh, Murfreesboro back-to-back road games at Middle Tennessee and a, a game that, you know, maybe you're rowing two, but maybe you're still somewhat confident. And then if they were to lose that game, that could be, you know, a real hit to uh, their season. So that, that is a, that is a tricky game, but if they are competitive against Washington state, or at least show some signs of life on offense against Washington state and Colorado, um, I think that this Colorado State team is going to be a tough team to beat in the Mountain West. And I, I think they do have a shot at bowl eligibility. And I I am much more confident that they can get over, uh, you know, our, our win total projection over that four and a half than I was for, you know, the previous two teams. All right, let's go over to number 116 and talk Old Dominion. Old Dominion uh, beat Virginia Tech and also knocked off Sunbelt champ Sunbelt East champ Coastal Carolina in 2022, but the Monarchs struggled the rest of the way in a three and nine campaign that ended with six straight losses. Three and a half is the DK win total. We only have them favored to win one. We have them at three and nine. So we're officially under the three and a half for Old Dominion. ODU Sunbelt debut Nick was a dud. Ricky Ronnie's squad ranks 128th in returning production. Is there reason to expect improvement in 2023 or could the Monarchs fall even farther? this season so i was pretty excited about old dominion early in the offseason i was really excited about the hire that they made uh their new offensive coordinator kevin decker who if you you know missed our early offseason discussions and and uh didn't see uh the numbers that fordham put up last year at the fcs level I mean, it's it's uh, a lot to be excited about. Um, but you know, digging into updating their team profile, especially after uh, Hayden Wolf transferred, um, which at first when he transferred, you know, it's like wow, multi-year starter. Maybe he got beat out. You know, maybe the the transfer coming in from Fordham, who was actually a backup last year, uh, Grant Wilson. Maybe maybe he beat out. Hayden Wolf because he you know knows the system and uh, even though he wasn't the starter last year I mean the guy they did have was you know four thousand yard passer all American type season um, maybe he's just 
you know, the guy comes in. But uh, then again, maybe Hayden Wolf looked around and, and thought, man, there is not much here. <laughs> like this, you know, uh, 128th in returning production. Uh, yeah, Javon Harvey, who had a pretty solid year last year, um, is back. Yeah, a couple of good offensive linemen, but Old Dominion had you know multiple guys that Wolf played with got drafted. Those guys the are no John Travolta there. meme of where is everybody? <laughs> right, right, right. And then you know there are a couple of guys. I mean, offensively, Harvey is there. I've seen some things kind of to like about Jordan Bly. He certainly has uh, you know NFL bloodlines. Uh, Dre Bly's son, um, and then Jason Henderson. You know had almost 200 tackles last year uh linebacker you know was certainly got all american mentions because he was the nation's leading tackler last year but multiple guys drafted um and then just uh, you know tons of players ended up entering the transfer portal you know not only wolf but blake watson who was a talented multi you know skill set type guy uh, as a runner and a receiver out of the backfield. Uh, lost tight end Zach Kuntz uh, to the NFL draft. Um, they lost Kadera Kunta to uh, UCLA, starting left tackle, um, uh, transferred out. Multiple impact players on the defensive line, Alonzo Ford, Chaz Wallace, you know, both of those guys uh, moved on. Deep Harris uh, transferred out. And, you know, lost some guys to graduation in the secondary. So it's just, I, I, the, there wasn't a whole lot of reporting. I haven't found, I guess, the, if there is a kind of daily top beat reporter uh, for Old Dominion, I haven't really found it. Most of the information you're able to get actually comes out of the athletic department. Um, So it's, you know, not always uh, the most informative, but so I'm trying to like put myself in Hayden Wolf's shoes. Like, oh, did he? Uh, is this offense, you know, really great? Did he just get get beat out, or maybe was he thinking that you know what, this could be one of the worst teams in college football? That's kind of where I'm leaning right now. I mean, there there was a minute, and I actually uh, I, I'm thankful for it because it helped me catch up. Uh, something I had wrong in my uh, calculations. But when I first finished the roster information in the team profile for Old Dominion, I was like, this is the low, not only is this the lowest roster strength <laughs> I've seen in the last few years, it might be the lowest on record by far. <laughs> and so, so that got me to kind of dig a little deeper. I was like, oh, okay, actually it's not maybe as bad as I thought, but it's bad. I mean, it's, I mean, it's we're talking right. uh, Old Dominion, who's a team that, you know, just two years ago was, uh, had a, a really, really excellent year, really solid season, went to a bowl game, looked like they were going to be competitive in the Sun Belt, you know, moving into uh, a new conference and, and maybe positioned to be a team on the rise. And then right now, you know, the level just of, of raw talent that is currently, on the roster as we calculate it is on par with Navy and New Mexico. And that's not where you want to be. That's not in a, a position that you expect to be successful week in and week out. 
uh, in the Sun Belt, which really has been a conference, you know, on the rise. Um, you're you're not only at a significant talent disadvantage against you know Virginia Tech and Wake Forest, who are on the roster, and of course, yeah, they beat Virginia Tech last year, but um, they're going to be at, at you know just a, a pound for pound standpoint uh, at a big time disadvantage in those games, but they're probably going to be, you know, significantly outmanned uh, week in and week out in the Sun Belt. Uh, and that's, that's just, that's a, a bit of a concerning uh, place for me. So um, it, it was pretty close. The, you know, three and a half win total projection. Uh, we were pretty close to that. Had them only favored against their FCS opponent, but um you know, do have them in the three win range. I was, I, I breathed a little bit of a sign of relief that we were under that three and a half. And there, there certainly are some good players on the roster. I think that the offense could definitely be exciting with Decker, you know, in place and, and calling the plays, but I'm just not sure that the the talent and the depth is, is really there. Uh, for this Old Dominion team to be competitive week in and week out, I, I definitely think that this is a team that uh, could be in for you know double digit losses unless that offense just really clicks immediately and they uh, you know are able to to turn that into a lot of shootout wins. And right now, at least the way the roster is constructed and the way we we calculate it, I I just don't really see it. Yeah, gonna be a tough year. Old Dominion, it looks like. Let's go to number 115, USF. Uh, the Bulls showed promise, including one-score losses to a trio of ranked opponents. But Jeff Scott was dismissed in early November in an eventual 1-11 season that ended with 10 consecutive losses. DK has their win total for 2023 at 3.5. We have them favored to win 4. We have their record as 5-7, and seven, so we are officially pretty over at 3.5. Nick, the question with USF. Scott fielded a talented roster, but couldn't win enough to keep his job. Will new head coach and former Tennessee OC uh, Alex Golish get USF over the hump or at least put them back to respectability? I I mean, folks who've, who've paid attention to us for a while know that the way that we calculate things like roster strength and team strength, we've been a little too high on USF <laughs> pretty pretty consistently. So um, on the one hand, it seems like maybe we're in that boat again, where you look at it and think, you know, there's some talent. Not only is there some talent that Golish inherited uh, because, you know, Jeff Scott went pretty heavy in the transfer portal, brought in power five transfers like Yusuf Terry, Coffrey Brown, uh, you know, Gary Bohannon, uh, at quarterback last year, um, defensively, there's you know nine of our eleven projected starters on defense are transfers have transferred at, at some point in their career. So, from just a raw talent standpoint, uh, USF is a pretty talented team. You know, has um, I mean, you know, defensively last year, several categories. Uh, USF had the most talented linebacker group, uh, you know, back seven, front seven in the AAC uh, at the end of last year, according to our projections. And they're a team that didn't win a single conference game, went one and 11. So um, obviously that, you know, there, there are a team 
Um, actually, I, I misspoke. They were they were second in a couple of those categories. Uh, they are a team that has consistently either relied on Power Five transfers who maybe were overrated, which is certainly a possibility, um, or they are a team that just has not lived up to their talent potential. Um, and a couple of you know, coaches in a row have, have really, really struggled with what should be considered pretty talented rosters, it just just have not been able to win, uh, win enough, win consistently. So um, on the one hand, Alex Golish, Tennessee, incredible offensive performance last year, um, would expect that. You know, a guy like Byron, excuse me, a, a guy like Byron Brown, who took over as the starter, uh, was the third string guy most of last year. But when Bohannon went down, Catavius Marsh went down with injury. Unfortunately, a season ending injury for Marsh, or excuse me, career ending injury. Um, you know, Brown really stepped up and, and looked exciting. Uh, ended up, you know, starting two games, playing him four, and I think could really be the quarterback that this program builds around um made some plays with his feet uh made some pretty eye-popping throws at times too uh if if you know he steps in and, and plays as well as he did in that small sample size and then you get some guys like terry and brown and you know michael brown stevens who just transferred in from minnesota uh naeem simmons a transfer coming up seth jones uh you know those guys will be in their first year uh, at USF. If that comes together, you know, you get a little bit of a running, uh, you know, rushing attack, which actually was a real, real bright spot for USF last year. They were number seven nationally in our uh, rushing offensive team performance. Uh, however, they did lose Brian Batiste to transfer to uh, Auburn and, and then Jared Mangum um, transferred out and, and, uh, ended up at Michigan State, um, but bring in Naquan Wright from Florida. Um, they also have some you know other talent on the roster as well. Kelly Joyner uh, should be back and healthy after missing a big part of last season. He's been um, you know a, a, a good return man in addition to uh, kind of a multifaceted option or excuse me multifaceted offensive weapon uh can do some good things as a receiver and as a running back uh michael dukes uh, is dealing with a uh legal issue that you know will have to, to play itself out but he was a transfer from clemson depending on whether or not he's able to make it back um if so pretty talented you know trio of running backs uh pretty good you know solid receiver group i think the offense especially with Golish as a playmaker, should be should be quite good. But the defense, which, as I mentioned, was up toward the top, if not the top, in you know, multiple uh, categories in the AAC last year, played much, much worse than that. 130th in defensive uh, team performance last season, 131st dead last in rushing team performance defensively. Um, they have to, you know, almost completely uh, rebuild the. That's an overstatement. They have to. They have to plug some holes in uh, the front seven this year. They do get Jason Vaughn and Tramel Logan 
back at defensive end. They do get Rashad Cheney, who missed a significant portion of last season with injury. You know, so up front, you know, could could be good. They did obviously hit the transfer portal pretty hard. Uh, guys like Emmanuel Hickman, Bernard Gooden, Wood Summerall, DJ Harris, all could factor in, if not as starters, you know, certainly uh, contributors. But other than DJ Gordon, the fourth, the linebacker group is going to be new, potentially two new starters uh, who are first-year transfers, and Jamie Petway, who was a solid performer at FAU, and then uh, Andrew Mataafa, who was uh, from Utah. And the secondary is experienced, but really, really struggled last year. So um, similar to what we've said, it seems like year in and year out the last few years about USF is, you know, on paper, this is a talented team. You would expect that they are going to be certainly competitive week in and week out. Um, And we saw glimpses of that last year, as you mentioned, but they just haven't found a way to win. And perhaps, you know, a a change at coaching, coaching staff and head coach could unlock that. I'm always a little bit hesitant to uh, expect that for a first time, first year head coach. Uh, But, you know, offensively, I think there's a lot of room, or excuse me, a lot of reason to be optimistic. And and Byron Brown is somebody that I'm I'm really really excited to see in this offense. And I think if if that side of the ball, um, you know, if they're able to uh, do anything close to what they did last year running the football, um, I think the passing offense is definitely going to take a step forward. And I have to expect that the defense is going to be a bit better too. So. Um, Again, I'm sort of buying into the upside for USF. Um, three and a half doesn't seem unreasonable. This team was competitive against some good teams last year, just couldn't get over the hump. Uh, schedule uh, schedule looks like there's at least three and a half winnable games here, Nick. I mean, yeah. uh, Florida A&M, Rice, Navy, uh, FAU, UConn, Temple, uh, Charlotte. I mean, mm-hmm. there are there are more than three and a half winnable games on the schedule for them. Yeah, winnable, but it's getting it's actually getting it done, and that's that's right. been the problem. So. Yeah, yeah, it's been an issue uh, for USF, but uh, looks like maybe we could see a little return from them. Uh, number one fourteen, UConn. First year head coach Jim Morris sparked one of the biggest turnarounds in college football from a one and eleven record in twenty twenty one and a one and four start to win five of the last six and secure a spot in the Myrtle Beach Bowl. Five and a half is their DK win total. We have them at five and seven, so we're officially under the five and a half. But for UConn, Nick, they found ways to win, though underlying numbers suggest that the Huskies may have played better than their final six and seven record. Morris squad ranks 10th in returning production. Should we expect similar success or is this going to be a big step back in year two for UConn? I, I saw a lot of things that I liked last year. Um, I mean, obviously the, you know, the win column number uh, was, was a big piece of that. And just about nobody, I, I think expected UConn to come anywhere close to that. I mean, I do believe that they were actually 131st in our preseason power rankings last year. Um, just, you know, roster wise, roster strength uh, among the lowest in the country. Uh, didn't really know exactly what to expect from Jim Mora. Certainly, you know, resume wise, um, seemed like he was a 
a quality hire for UConn, but had been out of, you know, uh, football for a while and, and been out of college football uh, specifically and, and, you know, going to a really difficult situation, an independent program uh, in the Northeast where obviously, you know, uh, talent isn't quite as uh, easy to come by uh, as it is in other parts of the country. And most recently, Jim Moore was at UCLA where, um, you know, don't have to go very far to find multiple top 100 recruits. Um, you know, didn't really know what to expect, but expectations certainly weren't high. And it looked like that, you know, uh, with that one in four start, um, things were probably going to play out that way. But they were, you know, perhaps somewhat fortunate that uh, Jay Kaner was injured, unable to play. Um, so UConn was able to, to shock a lot of people by upsetting Fresno State at home last year and, and then um, was able to take care of business against, you know, some teams where they had a similar talent profile. FIU, uh, they, they found a way to beat Boston College, you know, Power 5 program. Um, the defense was certainly a big uh, piece of that. Um, UConn has you know had last year and 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 returns uh one of the better linebackers in the country and jackson mitchell kind of leads that unit uh the secondary has some quality players and then you know up front guys like eric watts and Damart uh gordin and jelani stafford price yates uh pretty solid front four that you know it's kind of similar in some ways to colorado state you know, the defense was good enough that it kept UConn in games. Uh, UConn was just able to, to do a little bit more offensively and, and specifically running the football. They were 34th in offensive, you know, rushing uh, team performance last year. And they did that when their guys just kind of kept going down uh, with injuries. I mean, they, they lost Brian Bruton early on. Um, they lost... Uh, Nate Carter, who eventually ended up transferring to Michigan State, but a local guy, Victor Rosa, true freshman, stepped up, had a really, really solid year. Devontae Houston, who had um, some success even prior to Rosa breaking out, uh, who later had some injury issues of his own. You know, they, they just kind of kept going one after the other, next man up, and, and the running backs were productive. The offensive line, uh, you know, didn't grade out super well in team performance 104th overall part of that was you know their their lack of success uh in the in the passing attack and part of that probably was a true freshman quarterback who maybe took a you know a few more sacks than he um uh, might had he been a little bit more experienced but um they were able to run the football keep the games close and the defense kept them in it and they just found a way to win so um is that a, you know, repeatable plan of attack? Is that something that Jim Mora and, and this team is going to be able to replicate and, you know, stay competitive and, and make it back to another bowl game? I think it's possible. I mean, Zion Turner started basically a full season as a true freshman last year. Um, he is a, you know, had a, had a, a background as a uh, you know high school player, one of the winningest programs in the country out of the state of Florida. Um, but he will 
you know, he's not necessarily guaranteed to start. They brought in a transfer from the FCS level, multi-year starter, Joseph Fagano, who has some connection with the uh, coaching staff from his time at Maine. Uh, Taquan Roberson, who was the starter in week one before he went down with a season ending injury. He'll be back. Caleb Millen uh, played, you know, nearly 8% of snaps last year in a part-time role. Um, there's, there's going to be some competition for Turner's spot, but you know, you can't really, uh, can't really replicate a, a full year's worth of, of starting reps as a true freshman. That I think is going to be, uh, the biggest key to, you know, Turner's, uh, potential to, to hold on to this job and improve from year one to year two. So, um, you know, assuming that they get it figured out with probably, you know, several multiple, uh, quality options at quarterback, I certainly think that, um, the running back group is going to be just as good, if not better. They, they added a transfer in Jalen Mitchell, who uh, did some good things during his time at Louisville. Rose is back. Houston's back. Bruton is back and healthy. So um, I think that's a, a you know, pretty solid group uh, there. They've got some playmaking ability at receiver. Cameron Ross, assuming he can get back fully healthy uh, for the first time in a few years, would be you know huge. But uh, Kevin's Clercius is back. Jacob Flynn, uh, you know, played a lot of snaps last year. They brought in a transfer in Jordan Porter, who was a, a Power Five recruit coming out of high school. Uh, the tight end group, pretty good. Brandon Naminski was a full-time starter. Justin Jolly, you know, was a, kind of a big play tight end as a true freshman last year. Four returning starters on the offensive line. I think that there's a lot to like about uh, – this, this UConn roster, the experience it gained last year and the confidence that it gained. Um, the schedule is not the most difficult as an independent program, but they do have to play, you know, ACC opponents, NC State, Duke, uh, Boston College again, who you know that's going to be uh, a revenge game. You know, Tennessee, one of the best offenses in the country, most likely last year on the road, but there are plenty of winnable games with teams of a similar talent level. Georgia State, FIU, Utah State, Rice, uh, USF, you know, teams that we've been talking about already right. in, in this show. So um, they finish I, up with Sacred Heart and UMass as well. <laughs> right. You would expect that, you know, probably going to be favored in, in both of those games. So um, I I think I was, first of all, incredibly impressed with, with what UConn did last year. My number one you know, first reaction is that we probably shouldn't expect them to be able to do it again. Um, but, you know, a lot of players are coming back uh, from last year's team and they kind of followed what seems to be a, a repeatable uh, plan to play good defense, run the football, keep it close and then find a way, you know, to, to win a game, uh, in the fourth quarter. So, um, if I were, you know, to, to say, am I happier or not, that we are under five and a half, I think I'm, I'm glad that we're, uh, under because it's just, you know, talent profiles, it's tough. Um, and it's tough to win as many close games, uh, year after year, but, UConn took a big step in the right direction last year. And I think, you know, there's a lot of reason to think that they'll be 
they're not going to fall back to being one of the very worst teams in college football uh, this year and hopefully anytime soon. Hopefully this is a program that's going to continue, you know, to build and, and uh, field, you know, raw, uh, ta- more talented rosters and, and be a well-coached team. Um, and hopefully, you know, continue to, to uh, find a way to be successful uh, week in and week out, year in and year out. Cause I, I think that the, the potential's there. I'm just not necessarily, I, I kind of expect there'll be maybe a, a small step back in year yeah. two. If, that's if reasonable, especially since it was a big step up in yeah. 2022, but let's get them to another bowl. I mean, uh, let's keep our boy, John Lobb, uh, entertained yeah. and happy. Yeah. Right. So, uh, biggest UConn fan that I know. Um, number 113, New Mexico State. Uh, New Mexico State's year one success under Jerry Kill was just as surprising as UConn under Jim Mora, uh, overcoming an 0-4 start to finish 6-6 six and six, thanks to a waiver the Aggies were able to play in the quick lane ball, and they beat Bowling Green 24-19 in that game. Five and a half is their DK win total. We have them at 6-6. Six and six. I believe this is the first team that we have projected to go even and be bowl eligible um, in these rankings so far. Over five and a half, obviously, in that right. Uh, New Mexico State, the Aggies have experienced an offense led by uh, late season uh, star QB Diego uh, Pavia, but must rebuild a defense that excelled down the stretch of last year's ball run. Can Kill keep this team as competitive as a member, a new member of Conference USA? I I think I could could probably just repeat basically everything I said for UConn. Uh, I mean, they're you know, similar similar expectations coming into last year. One of the lowest rated teams in college football. I mean, talent-wise, just, you know, very, very difficult to bring in talented players. Um, not in a, a location that is very close to, to a lot of talent. And, you know, playing as an independent last year similar to UConn uh you know one of the the things that people bring up is why that's a difficult situation is players don't necessarily have something to play for you know don't have a a conference title uh to play for bull eligibility is is you know a piece of that but um that was last year both UConn and New Mexico State getting to bowl games was so so much of an overachievement that I don't think any of us were really you know, thinking bowl eligibility was even a, a a goal, a reasonable goal for either program. But uh, not only did they show improvement, not only were they more competitive, but they were able to to get it done. And uh, New Mexico State followed a similar a similar path. Um, inexperienced play at quarterback. Uh, you know, Pavia struggled early. You know, showed some signs of promise, but was very inconsistent, similar to Turner at, at UConn. Um, actually temporarily lost his job to Gavin Frakes for, for a while, uh, but came back. And then second half of the year, and definitely toward the end of the year, uh, put together some really exciting performances that, that make you think that uh, he has the ability to be, um, you know, the strength of, of this team and, and this offense. Uh, coming into this year, a big reason to think that, you know, maybe they can repeat and get back to, to bowl eligibility. Um, New Mexico State is, you know, brings back a lot of that offense that not spectacular. I mean, they were 102nd in offensive team performance last year. Uh, the rushing attack was a little bit better, top 70 nationally. Um, Pavia can 
run a little bit, uh, does make some plays on the ground, but also they had a pretty solid uh, one-two running back duo. Jamani Jones was technically the starter, but Star Thomas um, outproduced him on the ground. Uh, multiple returning starters in the receiving core, Cordell David and Jonathan Brady, uh, Thomas Whitford at tight end, uh, you know, pretty solid option there, and an experienced offensive line that, um, you know, Jerry Kill wants to run the football, wants to uh, cut down turnovers, play good defense, keep games close, and find a way to win there toward the end. It worked really well for the most part, especially in the second half of last season. And, you know, we will have to uh, rebuild on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, lost some really productive players, especially at linebacker. Chris Ojo, Trevor Brohard, both of those guys are going to be difficult to replace. A couple of productive defensive ends as well. Lazarus Williams, Donovan King, both of those guys are gone. Um, but, you know, added some potential impact transfers. Guy like Dion Will- uh, Diane Wilson, Dion Wilson, excuse me, uh, transfer from Arizona. Uh, I would expect is going to be able to plug in and, and be a, an immediate starter uh, on the defensive line. Uh, they do bring back a couple of starters in the secondary, Andre Selden, Dylan Early. Uh, I expect a couple of first-year transfers coming in, John Higgins and uh, Keontae Glinton, probably going to uh, get starting spots there uh, alongside those two guys. So it's a situation where, you know, the, the talent profile is similar. They are going to rank well into the triple digits in roster strength. Uh, may not be dead last like they were last year for uh, pretty much the, the you know entirety of the season. Um, but uh, New Mexico State's just a, a situation where it's difficult to build a just a, a roster that is uh, packed with super talented guys. It's a place where you have to get kind of creative. Um, a lot of junior college players, you know, transfer portal, they've been pretty good the last year or two, but still don't, you know, uh, aren't able to completely, uh, remake a roster through the transfer portal, like, you know, some programs. So, um, they do seem to have a pretty solid coaching staff in place, have a program builder at the top and Jerry kill a guy who has won, you know, basically everywhere he's ever been and is off to an excellent start at New Mexico state. And now they do have, you know, that, that thing to play for in a conference title and conference USA um, is going to be, you know, at least according to our power rankings, I I expect to be the uh, lowest rated conference in college football. So maybe New Mexico state is actually going to be in the mix, you know, not going to be the favorite because a team like Western Kentucky, who uh, is a road game for New Mexico state this year, um, uh, will likely, you know, be the favorite. There's going to be tough opponents in Louisiana Tech and Middle Tennessee. Uh, you know, UTEP is a rival now, a conference game that that that's going to be a tough one too. But uh, Liberty certainly expect to come in and, and be consistently one of the more competitive uh, favorites in in Conference USA. So it, it certainly won't be an easy. Uh, or, or wouldn't necessarily expect New Mexico State to come in and and just be playing for a conference title right away, but um, they will be competitive. They're not going to be significantly, significantly outmanned uh, week in and week out. And, you know, 
there is only one Power Five opponent on the schedule. I have, a, have to take a late uh, late season trip to Auburn, but unlike UConn, who has you know multiple um, big time uh, you know Power Five opponents on on the schedule, uh, New Mexico State's non conference slate a little bit easier. Get UMass in Week Zero, um, New Mexico rival. Uh, trip to Hawaii, you know, that that's not the easiest trip to make, but it's certainly a winnable game. Um, so this, uh, I, you know, it, it's difficult to expect New Mexico State to consistently uh, be in the mix for bowl eligibility. And, you know, defensively, I, I certainly do have some concerns uh, that they lost some of their best and most productive players, but I do think it's a manageable schedule. And I, again, much like I was super impressed with what Jim Mora did at, at UConn, you have to be incredibly impressed with what Jerry Kill did at New Mexico state. They were able to capitalize on a, uh, a schedule that, you know, had a lot of win- winnable games on it. And I, I think I give him the benefit of the doubt to, to be able to do it again. So it's going to be very, very difficult to get back to a bowl game, even with a, that manageable, manageable schedule, um, but I don't, you know, uh, I don't hate being on the over five and a half. I, I, I think it's, I think it's certainly possible, but you know, similar taking a, a small step back, uh, is definitely a possibility as well. Cause it is just a difficult place to win consistently. Yeah. I mean, like you said, difficult place to win, but when you look, like you said, the schedule, there are so many winnable games, you know, not that they will win all of them or even six of them, but they're like eight or nine winnable games here. So there's a little bit of more of a margin for error for New Mexico state as well. So I I really like that number uh, for them at six and six. So let's go to one twelve Vanderbilt after upsetting, upsetting Kentucky and Florida. Vandy hosted number 10 Tennessee with ball eligibility on the line in the regular season finale. However, the Commodores were completely outclassed in a 56 to zip beat down. Obviously, Tennessee very good last year. Three and a half is their win total for this year. We have them at four and eight. So we're officially over the three and a half. Nick for Vandy, uh, they overachieved most preseason expectations, but they were also blown out by most of the top teams on their schedule. Can the Commodores take another step or is a margin of error? too small for Vandy to become bowl eligible in the SEC. Yeah, I, I really like what you said about New Mexico State having a mar- margin for error. And at Vanderbilt, that really just doesn't exist. It does I not mean, exist, you, right? You, yeah. have to, you have to win your winnable games at Vanderbilt, um, basically. You know, the, the, uh, if you total up the scores last year, of the Tennessee game, the Georgia game, the Alabama game, uh, you know, it was what 160 something to three um, yeah. for Vandy, and and you know that's just uh, a gap that they're not going to be able to overcome. They don't have to play Alabama this year, uh, fortunately, but uh, do get Auburn on the you know crossover. Do have to play Ole Miss again as usual. Ole Miss scored 50 plus on Vanderbilt last year, so that's going to be difficult. Tennessee expect that they will be. Um, you know, maybe not quite the the level of overall uh, team strength as they were last year, but still one of the best offenses in the country and a very, very talented team. So Vandy's going to have to take care of business. You know, three and one in the non-conference schedule, again, is the absolute minimum. 
Uh, finding a way to beat Wake Forest on the road would certainly help. Um, and then find a way to win winnable SEC games. They do get con- Kentucky at home. They do get Missouri at home. They played Missouri tough last year, beat Kentucky. Um, and then, you know, Florida's a situation beat them last year, uh, kind of a, uh, things don't necessarily seem like they're trending in, in the, uh, best direction there. So maybe that even on the road is uh, a winnable game. They do have to play South Carolina on the road. You would, I think rather, uh, have that game at home if you're, if you're Vandy, but, um, yeah, it's just the, the margin of error to, to get over that hump, to get that sixth win, uh, is very, very, you know, very, very thin. And if it happens, it's probably going to have to happen early. I mean, maybe, you know, there's a path. Uh, I would say that the likelihood of this is very, very low, mm-hmm. but there is a path to six and oh, if you're Vanderbilt, you know, beat Hawaii at home, beat Alabama, any of them, Wake Forest without Sam Hartman, you know, they're beatable even on the road. Uh, I mean, you remember. Do you remember when Dr. Strange was going through like all the possibilities uh, in the uh, Infinity Wars? He's like, I saw 14 million. We won one. That is, <laughs> you know, that is Vanderbilt starting six and oh in any season. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, again, if it happens, if they're going to, if they're going to get two six wins, they're going to need probably five of them in the first six weeks, you know? I mean, maybe maybe they can overcome a loss to Wake Forest or Kentucky, but they're going to have to beat uh, Hawaii, Alabama, A&M, UNLV, and then you really can't, you know, let an opportunity slip against Missouri, who some some folks are really high on Missouri. I uh, think could be, you know, maybe the second best team of the East. Uh, so it's it's just very very difficult, and I do think that uh, you know there's a lot of things to like about. Vanderbilt's roster. AJ Swan got six games of starting experience as a true freshman last year at quarterback. I really liked Mike Wright made what some thought was a pretty uh, puzzling decision to transfer to Mississippi state. But um, you know, that kind of opens the way for Swan to be the guy. Uh, Will Shepard and Jaden McGowan are a solid one, two receiver duo. Um, you know, Patrick Smith may or may not be the, projected starter at running back they got a really strong spring from a true freshman cedric alexander um the offensive line you know three starters back guys who have played quite a bit um you know there's what seven guys with starting experience uh multiple players have starting experience at multiple positions um so you know offensively you kind of talk yourself into this uh, being uh, a decent unit, um, defensively, they, they really, you know, struggled last year, right? 115th in defensive team performance overall. That's, you know, significantly lower than their 81st ranked, uh, offense. Uh, the pass defense was among the very worst in college football. So that's, that's a major concern. Um, if Xavier were here, I'm sure he would say that, you know, bringing back four out of five starters in the secondary, you know, is, is uh, not necessarily a good thing because, uh, you know, old garbage stinks more, as, as he likes to say. So um, on the one hand, experience is a good thing. On the other, you know, um, you kind of would would like if if maybe they were able to 
uh, upgrade. And, and Vanderbilt didn't necessarily hit the transfer portal super hard. It's you know kind of difficult, I think, to to bring in uh, transfers to a place like Vanderbilt. But they did add you know Anais to Cosmo, who is a, a transfer in from Stanford, uh, who I expect will be a starter uh, off the edge. Uh, Prince Collie, they just got this past week. Um, a transfer from Notre Dame. He's a linebacker. Didn't pencil him in as to be a starter right away, but you know probably will play a good bit and, and has a connection with Clark Lee uh, from his time at, at Notre Dame. Um, and then, you know, you, you just have to think uh, or, or have to hope that they're able to develop um, some of those experienced players in the secondary. And, and you know, it sounds like from – most of, of what I've read and what I've seen, they've made some uh, headway on the recruiting trail, kind of up the the you know talent level a little bit the last couple of years after they've um, you know the new coaching staff came in and and uh, has kind of revamped some things. So uh, Vanderbilt is is similar to a lot of the teams that we've discussed today. It's a it's a difficult place to win, um, but there were you know, some real signs of improvement last year. And it's just whether or not they're going to be able to repeat what success they had and, and maybe find a, uh, an edge here or there to kind of get over the hump. And, and I'm not, you know, super optimistic that they're going to be able to get that sixth win. But I do feel pretty good about, you know, and our margin's not very big in our, our projected win total, um, 3.69 Again, is is what we project. Three and a half is the the you know posted uh, win total at DraftKings. Um, but I, I feel pretty good about that. I, I think I do like the early season schedule, like how it sets up. Um, if they're able to take care of business and win their winnable games early, like they showed last year, you know they this this team this program, um, I think can win you know, a game or, or maybe two that you wouldn't expect them to, that they're not supposed to. So if they Beat take Kentucky care of business and Florida last year, exactly. So if they take care of business in the games, they're supposed to win getting to that three and a half is, is certainly doable. And I think, you know, you could, you could, maybe it's not six and zero start, uh, <laughs> but I think there's a path, you know, to six wins on the high end as well. All right. Let's talk about the last team on the list for today. At number 111, Bowling Green, yet another 2022 overachiever. Bowling Green rode its experienced squad to a 6-6 six and six regular season uh, to record its first bowl game appearance since 2015, obviously. That was the Quick Lane Bowl that they lost to New Mexico State. Five is the DK win total. We have them at 5-7, and seven, but officially under the five just slightly. Uh, but Bowling Green was one of the top-ranked teams in returning production in 2022. But now in 2023, they rank 112. Can the Falcons stay competitive and avoid a big step back in 2023, Nick? So if you've been counting, uh, this, this is our you know, pretty optimistic set of, of teams and win totals. We're on the over on seven teams, I think. Uh, and then Bowling Green, this one, we're, we're on the under, but it's the margin is, is, uh, is slim. But I, I do actually feel somewhat confident that, you know, Bowling Green, uh, maybe even more so than some of the teams that we've discussed, it's going to be difficult to repeat 
the success that they had last year. Um, you know, in the Mac, the, the, the gap between the best team and the worst team is not very big. Um, so I do think the Bowling Green is going to be, you know, competitive is going to have an opportunity to win, uh, just about any game that they play in conference play. Um, they do get Toledo who expect will be the favorite at home, big rivalry game. Um, they, they do play, uh, you know, multiple power five teams. They have Georgia tech. They also have Michigan. I mean, they might lose 70 to nothing to Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they're able to, to survive that game, you know, and be healthy, uh, I think that they will be a difficult team to beat week in and week out in the Mac, but I do expect that they will be beatable if, if that makes sense. Um, you know, bringing up the returning production piece last year, they were on that extreme end, number one, number two, something in that range in overall returning production, both sides of the ball. They were among the most experienced units in the country. And then this year, you know, they're not on the, the extreme, uh, low end, uh, not, not lowest of the low, but triple digits is, is, you know, tough. Um, they do bring back some talented players. Uh, Adu Hilaire is an all-conference caliber wide receiver. Teron Keith, uh, all-conference performer uh, as a return man and running back. Um, they did bring in a power five transfer quarterback who's likely to start in Connor Basilak, uh, who's experienced 29 career starts at the power five level at Missouri and Indiana. Um, they also bring up a uh, all-conference performer FCS transfer receiver and Abdul Fateh Ibrahim, who, uh, like Hilaire, was a, a transfer from Alabama A&M. So, you know, there's there's some things to like there. The tight end position should be uh, pretty good. Levi uh, Gazarek is a returning starter. Harold Fannin, uh, pretty fun player, not just a tight end, but a short yardage, you know, wildcat type uh back uh scored you know multiple touchdowns last year uh so kind of a, a cff darling is a uh, as a tight end but offensively you know there's you could you could see how this could be a fun unit um they don't necessarily play the the most fun style under scott loffler but uh have some good players some solid players and i think you know have the the ability to to be a a pretty good uh offense if if you know everything uh goes well defensively you know they they do lose one of maybe the best player in in the mac uh in carl brooks i mean just incredible incredible production for defensive linemen 69 pressures last year um you know obviously you know going to be playing on sundays uh, 18 tackles for loss, 10 sacks. I mean, Carl Brooks uh, was just a, a, an incredible uh, defender in the MAC and, and going to be a you know somebody that they miss dearly. They do bring back Darren Anders, who I don't necessarily expect will have uh, quite that high level of production, uh, you know, as a, a pass rusher and and things like that. But has been a really uh, really productive uh, tackler. Uh, linebacker has been, you know, uh, had 77 tackles last year, 16 pressures. Um, and that was kind of on the low side uh, of, of his uh, overall 
you know, potential. So um, he will be sort of the star of, of the defense. But uh, beyond that, you know, that unit is losing a bit more um, than, than the offensive side of the ball. A lot more questions on defense. They're 125th in our adjusted defensive uh, returning production coming into this year. So other than Anders, you know, Anthony Hawkins is a returning starter on the defensive line, multiple starters in the secondary coming back, Jalen Burton, Deshaun Jones, Trent Sims, but the depth certainly took a hit. Uh, and then losing one of the very best defenders in the Mac and, you know, the group of five, uh, it's going to be going to be a little bit of a, a blow. So, you know, Bowling Green, who uh, played, for the most most of last season, played an above average uh, defense. They ended up falling, you know, slightly uh, below the FBS average once all was said and done. But you know, it, it's that's a unit that I expect to to take a step back. So that's that's my biggest reason for pessimism. Uh, you know, the offensive style of play perhaps um, will help a little bit. Uh, they don't play at a you know super high tempo. Uh, they're not the slowest team, and you know by by any stretch. But um, I do think that you know they they certainly open themselves up to uh, you, you know this is not necessarily a team that is built to survive a lot of shootouts like some of the ones right. that we talked about early. You know the rice uh, if if that's how they're expected to win, you know, maybe Old Dominion, if, if that's how they try to, USF, perhaps. Uh, Bowling Green's not built quite that same way. Even though they do have some good offensive players, I don't necessarily expect that that's their, you know, route to success. Bowling Green would be a little bit, you know, more set up for success in the the Yukon, the New Mexico State style um, that we've discussed of, of play a little slower, keep it close, find a way to win late. And you know, with as much turnover as they've got on the defensive side of the ball, I'm I'm not super optimistic that that they're going to be able to do that. So uh, certainly, similar to a lot of teams that we discussed today, took a big big step forward last year, um, and there is the, the the potential, you know, maybe to to take another step if mm-hmm. everything clicks, if the the transition at quarterback uh, is a smooth one. Um, if they do take advantage of a, you know, what is a manageable schedule, tough in spots, but, but a manageable schedule, especially in conference play, um, there's, there's definitely a path for them to get back to, to bowl eligibility, but a team that, you know, uh, kind of like some of the ones that we talked about a little bit of a, an outlier performance, big jump in the win column last year, it's hard to sustain that, um, and I expect, you know, maybe have to take a little bit of a, a step back uh, this year. So I am, I am glad that that our projection, though it's very very close, came in on the the low side for Bowling Green. I, I think that uh, five wins, maybe even four wins, is more likely than than six wins uh, for this team next year. Going to be a year. tough one for uh, Bowling Green, but. We'll see. That's why they play the games. And uh, next week, we'll be finishing up the triple digis here. We'll yeah. be going, uh, or most of them anyway, we'll be going from <laughs> uh, 110 to 101, right? And then 100. 
the following week. But the triple digits are wrapping up, so we're getting uh, closer and closer. Closer we get to the top, the closer the season is to getting here, and we love that. And Xavier will be back with us uh, next week. Be sure to follow him on the Twitter at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E. Follow me on the Twitter at Fogman Sports and Nick at CFB Winning Edge. And we will see you guys next week. Take it easy, everybody. Thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping our show ad-free and for funding our wide range of college football analytics projects. Thanks also to Blake Austin for our theme music. To learn more about CFB Winning Edge, visit patreon.com slash CFB Winning Edge or follow us on Twitter at CFB Winning Edge. (laughs) 